Welcome to the Queer Spirituality Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Crossenhill. This podcast is about an idea. It's the radical idea that queerness is a gift and that the divine celebrates it rather than merely accepts it. We'll explore the special role that queer people are meant to play in the coming spiritual awakening. Through the lives and stories of queer people, we'll explore the many ways of approaching the divine and how the sacred reveals itself in everyday actions. Most of all, this is a podcast about love. It's about the love of the universe. It's about love between people. And it's about the love a community can share with one another. Thank you for joining me. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Queer Spirituality Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Crossenhill, and with me today I have a very special guest, Thumper Forge. Thumper Marjorie Splitfoot Forge is a Gardnerian high priest, an initiate of the Minoan Brotherhood, a Discordian Episcopos, a recovering alcoholic, and a notary public from Houston, Texas. His first book, Virgo, Virgo Witch, Divining the Details, was co-authored with Eva Dominguez Jr., and was released by Llewellyn Publications in November of 2023. By day, he manages a leather and fetish wear shop, and by night, he dabbles in chaos magic, offers geomantic and lithomantic readings, and blogs irreverently for Pathos Pagan. His essays have previously appeared in The Gorgon's Guide to Magical Resistance and Modern Witchcraft with the Greek Gods, History Insights, and Magical Practice. Welcome to the show, Thumper. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I, I it's so fun talking to all these different people about their their spiritual path and how it relates to their queerness. So, I ask every guest right out of the gate, what does queer spirituality mean for you? Well, for me, um, spirituality in general is the process of becoming who we're supposed to be, and so for queer spirituality, I see it as the process of who we're supposed to who becoming who we're supposed to be as queer people, but also just embracing kind of the specialness and magic of our queerness. I love that because I think the the specialness and the magic of our queerness is is really an important part that often gets overlooked. We hear about spiritual paths that accept or tolerate queerness, but not that like really embrace the gift that queerness can be. So I really love that you include that in your definition. I'm curious about the idea of becoming who you're supposed to be or who you're meant to be. Like, how does someone figure that out if they're not? That is something that actually for me started with um, 12-step recovery. I got sober about 11 and a half years ago. And um, so that that involved going to a lot of meetings and drinking a lot of coffee. And in the <laughs> meetings that I was attending, I would always hear people talk about spirituality and how important spirituality was and being a spiritual person. But nobody ever offered a definition of it. It was something that everybody kind of understood, but nobody really was explaining what they meant when they said it. So I, um, I just kind of started doing my own research on that and looking up definitions and looking at how different people explain spirituality. And, um, for me as, as being somebody in recovery, becoming who I was supposed to be meant somebody who wasn't overwhelmed with my addiction and, you know, getting that 
out of the way so that I could be who I was supposed to be without this big kind of alcoholic phase, uh, haze in front of me. Um, so that's where it started for me. That's how I started work, how I started playing with that definition. Yeah. The, I, I, I love that 12 steps sort of does that for a lot of people. And, yeah. um, it's interesting too, when I talk to people who are in recovery, there's sort of this phase that they go through or this stage where there's almost like they have to rebuild community because so much of yeah. queer culture revolves around drugs and alcohol, unfortunately. So how, how did you sort of navigate that in the early stages of that process? I, um, I fell in with a, a group of guys who were sober and into the leather scene and yeah. which was not something that I had a lot of, um, background in, but, uh, there was a group of guys who either had been involved in leather before they got sober and were trying to figure out how to get back into that community or that culture. And there were other guys who had no interest in leather until they got sober. And so we just started kind of meeting on our own and, um, going to leather events as a group and kind of presenting ourselves as our own little leather club. And it, it was sort of a, uh, transient group in that everyone involved kind of went their own way, but most of us ended up involved in some aspect of the leather community, but we were able to do that because we had this kind of support network, uh, to figure all that out with. Yeah, that's great. And, and it's it's wonderful when people can find those sort of affinity groups and also explore things that they maybe hadn't explored before. I always think it's interesting, and I noticed in your bio, you you manage now a, a leather and fetish wear shop. And <laughs> it's interesting that the, the Venn diagram of queer leather, BDSM, and alternate spirituality has such a large overlap. Like, why do you think that is? I think it, um, it has to do with, for me, at least, uh, the idea of subculture within subculture. And, um, there are any number of, you know, queer people and men who love men who, who live, I don't want to say average lives, but who just sort of, you know, um, don't delve into spirituality and don't delve into anything alternative. And for a lot of us, once we find our place within, within something alternative, then we start, we're like, well, what else is there? And so we start seeking in other directions. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like you become addictive to the subcultures. It's like, okay, what other exactly. subculture can I explore? Yeah. Yeah. Very definitely. Much. And I also think that, um, the, the pagan community and the leather community are very similar in a lot of ways. Um, there's just very similar dynamics. Um, whether it's, you know, uh, small groups coming together with other small groups to create larger groups or, um, on the, uh, on the more negative side, the, the big fish in small ponds. Um, but because <laughs> the dynamics are so similar, it's easy to move from one into the other and kind of move back and forth between those cultures. Yeah, definitely. Um, so you've written a few books and, and done a number of things. Um, and your spirituality tends to be somewhat eclectic. How would you describe your spiritual path? Um, I, th I think eclectic is, is, a, is a, a good word to use for it. Um, that's, that's better than all over the place. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I started out, um, when I, I identified as pagan for a very long time. And in my late twenties, I, I went through this phase where I wanted to figure out where some of this stuff came from that everybody was talking about, or that, you know, that within the pagan community, 
um, there were various traditions and there were, you know, various practices and there wasn't a lot of history being displayed behind it. Like nobody seemed to really have a good grasp on where anything came from. And, uh, I, I, uh, I, I have the ADHD and I tend to hyper-focus. So I went on this deep dive of, I just want to know where this originated. And that led to, um, starting off just, you know, sitting in a, in my office in Houston, Texas going, I'm going to Google this and see what happens. And then nine months later, I was in a living room in Northern California, getting initiated into the Gardnerian tradition. Um, because that's where that that's where the dive had led me in terms of figuring out the history of things and where things actually originated. Um, and it was a very intense, real moment for me. And it made me kind of go, well, this is real. What else is real? And so I started, um, just kind of seeing what else was out there. And I would, you know, read a book that would mention some obscure religious tradition from that, was a flash in the pan in the seventies. And I was like, well, clearly I have to dive into that and figure out what that is. And, um, just, and things just started, uh, not coming together like as a puzzle per se, but more of like what you would find in a crow's nest of just like shiny things that, (laughs) that, um, struck me as interesting. And then just, you know, I went through a process of just kind of figuring out how things work together specifically for me. Yeah. You know, so yeah. when I'm, when I'm with Gardnerians and doing Gardnerian things, I, you know, it's a, that's a very, like, it's clearly Gardnerian, but when I'm on my own, it's, it's just this sort of kitchen sink spirituality of all the stuff that, that I managed to somehow fit together. Yeah. Yeah. I like what you said about the, the history and, and digging into the history, because I almost feel like the needles move the other way where people discount unverifiable personal gnosis a lot more today in favor of lore. And I think that there needs to be a happy medium because absolutely, um, obviously we're not going to worship ancient deities the way they did, you know, hundreds or even thousands of years ago. So, you know, it's got to evolve to be, to be a living tradition. Um, it's also interesting to me that you seem to have got like, in your practices, you've gone from like what I would consider very sort of left-brained and Gardnerian, very like Apollonian and very structured to like mm-hmm. chaos magic, which is, it, you know, in my experience, far more open and, and less structured. So mm-hmm. how did you sort of arrive at that? Or how did you reconcile systems that are so extremely structured versus ones that are so unstructured? Part of it has to do with, um, I guess the, the structure itself, because within, um, Gardnerian Wicca, there is a framework in terms of how like rituals are set up, but there's a lot of wiggle room within the, within the structure itself to, to experiment. And it's a very experiential tradition. You know, we we're actually doing things and, and, um, and having shared experiences. Um, my, uh, I did not have an interest in chaos magic for a very long time. I had it, it was sort of like on the periphery of my awareness and I associated it with like, with like edgelords or like, uh, <laughs> you know, just, uh, I, I was like, I don't know that those, that whoever's practicing chaos magic, I'm sure they're lovely, but they're probably not my people. And, uh, it was a really good friend of mine who sort of introduced me to it in terms of, um, his own personal practice and sharing some stuff with me involving, um, he, he was like, let's do an experiment. I'm going to 
put you on a massage table and I'm going to do energy work around you, but I'm going to have these goggles on you that, that pulse LED lights into your eyes. And we're going to be listening to binaural beats. And then we're going to visualize sigils. And I was like, okay, what is this? And he said, well, this is chaos magic. We're trying to see if it works. And that was uh, kind of a revelation to me in terms of what chaos magic actually is, which is at its core, just trying to get results. Like, mm -hmm. you know, finding out what works and what's going to get us results and what's going to get us repeatable results. And within the Gardnerian tradition, you know, we, we have a practice that does get us the results we're looking for. So it was easy to move, you know, chaos magic into my own paradigm in terms of, okay, well, I know that this works. What happens if I do, you know, X, Y, and Z instead of A, B, and C and see what happens? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, sounds interesting. Very, I have very little experience with chaos magic. I've, I've had friends who have practiced it, and I, you know, never really had an impression of it as something that interested me. Sort of like you said, mm -hmm. you know, just sort of that impression. These really aren't my people. I don't know if this is for <laughs> me, kind of thing. So, yeah, yeah. And chaos yeah, magic was also oh, pardon me. Uh, chaos magic was yeah. also very um, influenced by Discordianism, which has always like for years i did not know any other discordians i there was a there's an old book called um drawing down the moon by margot adler which was like this yep. uh i think it, i can't remember when it originally came out but it's gone through several several uh prints and it was just this like deep dive into paganism in the u.s and uh at one point she interviewed uh one of the founders of discordianism which is the modern worship of the greek god goddess eris and um i just found that to be the most fascinating thing so that always was sort of at the at the center of my personal practice was whatever i was doing with anybody else that was just something that i kind of kept to myself or had you know got to uh work with on a personal level and the more i learned about chaos magic and the history of chaos magic um the more the influence of discordianism on chaos magic became very apparent so that was it was sort of for me, it was very natural to move into that and be able to to really expand my interest and love of discordianism into a more magical practice. Yeah. So for, for listeners who might not be familiar, can you sort of describe what discordianism is? Oh, sure. Uh, so uh, discordianism was founded in the late 1950s by um, two guys named Greg Hill and Carrie Thornley, who claimed to um they were they said they were drinking coffee in a bowling alley one night and a chimpanzee appeared and told them that they were basically the new prophets of the goddess Eris and a few days later Eris appeared to them um and announced that uh, she was she was liberty and freedom and they were now free so uh they renamed themselves um Malaclips the Younger and Lord Omar Khayyam Ravenhurst and they put out a self-published book called the Principia Discordia which was all the lessons they had learned from Eris and they were starting this religion in her honor. It was very much um at least it started very much as a parody religion. It was just sort of um lighthearted mocking of of already established religious traditions. But it kind of took off and um, people started having very um, not parody experiences with it. Um, and in Drawing Down the Moon, um, Greg Hill made a comment where uh, 
I guess Margot Adler had asked him if he actually believed in Eris or if this was at all a serious religious practice. And he said, well, if I knew it was going to be real, I would have worshipped uh, Venus instead. And so even <laughs> though it started out as a joke to them, it became very real to them. And yeah. uh, it's it's always sort of um, been in the background of pop culture. Um, the author Robert Anton Wilson was very influenced by it um, and wrote a, a series of, uh, wrote the Illuminatus trilogy with Robert Shea that um, was very influenced uh, influenced by Discordianism and in turn influenced Discordianism. And a lot of Wilson's ideas in the book went on to seep back into Discordianism. Um, the uh, there was there was a popular band in the '90s, a British. Uh, synth band called the klf who were a discordian yep. band and people didn't realize they were discordian but uh they were doing some kind of crazy stuff in the name of eris and sort of accidentally becoming a <laughs> very popular pop band through that so discordianism has been around for a while and it's influenced a lot of things and been sort of quietly in the background and yeah. that's just something i appreciate about it yeah, thanks for sharing that because I, I think a lot of people probably aren't familiar with Discordianism and and don't necessarily know the connection between it and chaos magic. So thanks for sharing that because you know setting that background I think is important because sometimes the listeners don't know all these different traditions. And I'm glad that you mentioned Margot's book because I such a foundational book in so many ways into and it sort of opened a lot of people's eyes to all the different flavors of paganism and yeah. spirituality that were out there um i actually met margo at pagan spirit gathering probably 10 15 years ago when she was revising revising the book and i was part of green fairy grove in the between the worlds gathering at the time that she featured in the book on the oh. chapter on queer spirituality so so really always appreciated margo's work um so as a queer person, what does your spirituality bring to to your life that maybe people who are queer but haven't explored spirituality might not realize or might be missing? You know, I that question makes me think of something Harry Hay once said, who was the founder of the Radical Fairies, and he said, "We're not." His 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 point of view was that queer people weren't like everyone else um, because so much of the of the gay liberation movement at the time that that he was he was building things was very much focused on we're just like everyone else right. and he was like we're not we're special and um, I you know queer people are in a lot of ways very liminal people um, and we do you know move between worlds. And, uh, we, we, we have a unique ability to do that and exploring spirituality as a queer person has helped me really kind of embrace that. And, and just be as, as I find myself moving in different worlds, I'm in a place right now where, you know, I, I run, I run this leather shop and I'm very openly pagan at work and I, I can be my full 100% authentic self um down to like people look the other way when i keep bringing ray dunn pottery in because i love ray dunn pottery and um <laughs> so like the whole store is like leather fetishware ray dunn and uh but um but having having that background in um you know finding things that i wanted to that kind of helped me understand myself better and things that I wanted to share with other people and, you know, finding all the stuff within queer spirituality that helped me become a very 
robust person in a lot of ways and being somebody who can be very true to himself. Um, that, that's what I get out of it. That's, that's yeah. uh, yeah, that was definitely. sort of a rambly thing, but that was, no, I think, I think you answered it really well because I, I definitely like this idea of course, spiritual queer people being special that we're not just like everyone else. And I think we're still fighting that battle today, right. With people yeah. trying to police the pride parades and, and what's appropriate or not appropriate. And, you know, the acceptance of gay marriage and a lot of people sort of moving into this, you know, I I'm currently writing a book on, on queer community and I interviewed a number of people, you know, talking about what are your expectations around community? What do you get from community? These kinds of things. And I've noticed that a lot of the younger people that I interviewed were like, well, I don't really need queer community because we're accepted now. And I just hang out with straight people. And I just, you know, it was such a weird perspective to me. Mm-hmm. And I always liked Harvey Firestein on uh, an interview with Arsenio Hall said, queer people should be allowed to be as boring as everyone else. We're not as boring as everyone else, but we should be allowed to be. <laughs> so Absolutely. like that. Yeah. So I, I, I always enjoyed if, that. If somebody, if somebody wants to be boring, I, if a queer person is like, I am boring, I am like, you know what? Half the time I am too. So that is, that is brilliant. But there is, as we have received more mainstream acceptance there um there has been sort of this interior collapse of community itself and there is not a an emphasis on history the way they used to be right and i you know i remember reading an article about um it was a, a queer teenager or a gay teenager somewhere who experienced a gay bashing and in the interview, he was talking about like, oh, I just can't believe this would ever happen. I can't believe somebody would be, you know, angry at me because of my sexual orientation. And I was like, that's, that is part of our history. And that's right. like, you know, and it, it's, I think it's something that happens in a lot of subcultures or a lot of marginalized communities when they are granted some level of acceptance. The, it, the, there's this, impulse to sort of jettison the subculture itself and oh we've been embraced by the mainstream so we don't need each other anymore but you know that uh that acceptance is always conditional and and uh in most cases temporary and we can't guarantee that we will always have the acceptance and that's why for me the queer community has always been so important is because i will always find acceptance there you know regardless of whether or not the mainstream accepts me yeah, yeah. I think you raised really good points there. And I'm glad that we're having this conversation because obviously I believe community is really important and have been building queer communities for, you know, better part of my life with like festivals and retreats and the work that I do. So um, it, it always kind of feels really icky when someone says they don't need it. And I'm like, uh, you do, you just don't realize that you do. But, you know, exactly. looking at our political environment, you might figure it out in a, in a little while and that's going to be sort of tragic for you. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think the potential is still there to, to like, I don't think the community is, is gone. I, and uh, what is it? It's like when people say chivalry is not dead, it just smells funny. I think the community is kind of smells funny right now. Um, yeah. But, some of those bonds are are still around and it's like when um when there was the uh monkeypox outbreak last year and 
there was an article. I'm really good about reading articles. I'm not good about remembering who wrote them or the headline <laughs> or where I found them. So I'm just, <laughs> I'm, I'm a wealth of information that cannot be traced to any particular source. But uh, there was an article that came out where like, it was, it was, it, and it was in something like Newsweek, but it was like, what happened to monkeypox? Where did monkeypox go? Last week, we were all afraid of monkeypox, and now there are no cases. And there were these comments, uh, and people were retweeting it, and they're like, because queer men who lived through the AIDS crisis know how to handle something like this. And as soon as there, the outbreak started, we rallied for vaccinations, and we made sure everybody was vaccinated, and we took care of each other, and we nipped it in the bud, which is something that the larger heterosexual community would not have been able to do. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And the, which is sort of illustrates the point of why the history piece is important because mm. when those of us who did live through the AIDS crisis are gone, if people haven't embraced that history and learned from it, then future outbreaks aren't going to be as smooth as the monkeypox one was. So the yeah. history is definitely very important. So, um, I want to talk about your book that you co-wrote with Evo. Um, so Aries, the Virgo Witch, sorry, the Virgo Witch, Divining the Details. So I know Llewellyn's doing this series with all the different astrological signs. So my first question is, why Virgo? Um, so <laughs> I, uh, first of all, I am a Virgo. So I got, every, um, every book in the Sun Sign series was co-authored by somebody of that particular sign. So cool. you have... Okay. You have ego or Evo's very formidable astrological astrological knowledge for half the book, and then you have somebody kind of living as that sign um, to share their perspective as well. Um, I got asked because um, I I had written on my blog a parody review of Storm Fairy Wolf's book, The Satyr's Kiss, um, where somebody had sent me a promotional copy or a advanced review copy. And so I wrote this review where I was saying how disappointed I was because I thought it was going to be Narnia slash fiction and just, just tearing up storm. And he's a friend of mine. So it was like, like I knew he would sure. think it was funny. Like I knew it was yeah. all done with love, but then he messaged me one day and said, my editor would like to speak to you. And I was like, Oh, I've been blacklisted. I, I, I picked the wrong <laughs> target. And, uh, so I was like, well, I'll just go back to Pathios and explain that I got a sued by Llewellyn Publications and they'll, I'm sure they'll understand. But uh, I saw, so I reached out to his editor and said, hi, Storm suggested that I speak with you. And she said, yes, we would like to you to be a part of this series. Um, so apparently my parody review um, was, <laughs> was the reason I got asked to, to be the Virgo witch, um, which I had never written a a book before i'd always kind of stuck to you know blogging and social media and things like that um and i was dealing with some imposter syndrome because i astrology is not my strongest suit and i don't know or at the time i was like i don't even know if i really fit the stereotype of a virgo and a couple of months after i started working on the book i did a phone conference with evo and he said well how's it going and i said well I um, got writer's block and I freaked out and had a panic attack over it. So I disassociated and I played on TikTok for a month. And he said, oh, that's because you're a Virgo. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. Well, that in that case, everything's great. I can do this now. And that was sort of the little bump I needed to actually realize that I could do it. Yeah. 
<laughs> I love that story. <laughs> um, yeah. And the, and the writer's block and, and like, finding something else to do is so real. Cause you know, I, I I'm working with a book writing coach, but I'm still like, sometimes I go to my sessions and I'm like, well, I started to work on that part and then I froze up and I went and did something else. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and I'm not a Virgo, I'm a Sagittarius. So, you know, should be easy for me, but something about mm-hmm. writing, you know, I can talk all day long, but when it comes to putting it down on paper, it's much harder. <laughs> it is. It's, it's, so, I think for, I know for me, there's this idea that like the book I want to write is in my head and the, the, there's a fear of getting it down on paper where it's not going to be the way I wanted it to, you know, it's not going to turn out the way yeah. I wanted it to. And I, uh, so I freeze up on that of, yeah. you know, or I had a, I, I'm the second book that I'm working on right now. I was looking at a stack of books on chaos magic in my living room and thinking, I, I, there's no way I can put all this in my book. This is, you know, this is overwhelming. And then I was like, but that's not your book. That's their books. So you don't need to worry about putting what's in their books in your book. Just focus on what you want to say. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's so, it's so hard. And I think that people who have perspectives to share sometimes get in that imposter syndrome. I have a, I have a mm-hmm. good friend who's really talented psychic medium and, and spiritual coach. And she gets on Instagram and she's like, I feel like I see people say something and I'm like, oh, that's that resonates with what I want to say. But then I feel like I'm not being original, like I'm copying everyone else. And so mm-hmm. it's it's interesting how people struggle with that. So yeah. what tell me a little bit about Virgo Witch. Like it, why would someone want to read this book? It's um so the idea behind the Sunshine series in general is for um witches of every astrological sign to um be able to connect more with themselves and kind of draw power from their sign like you know how to, yeah. how to not only identify as your sign but to work with the archetypes and energies that make up that sign um and so every book has um a vast amount of information about the sign itself, including like if, if you're a Virgo moon or Virgo rising, there's info on that. Um, and, uh, along with there are spells and rituals and there are other contributors who contributors who put in, you know, recipes and little biographies, um, for, for me as a Virgo and Virgo being, um, as Evo puts it, the most neurotic of the signs, my perspective (laughs) in writing the book was you are not alone like however however you are presenting as a virgo i promise you're not having to deal with this by yourself we are in this together so i really <laughs> wanted to write a book that made people realize that like however however it is that that your virgoness is ex- is expressing itself we are we've all gone through it and it, that's it's it's kind of like something you pick up when or that i picked up in 12 step recovery where i went in uh, to recovery thinking nobody will understand what I've been through. And within like a week I was like, Oh, they've all been through exactly what I've been through. This is kind of demoralizing in a way. Cause I'm not, a, I'm not the little special cupcake I thought I was. Um, <laughs> and so I kind of used that same, uh, outlook in writing a book for Virgos, uh, because I do think Virgos can get very down on ourselves very easily or get into the, why am I like this? And, uh, and so at least that way nobody's going to nobody who no no virgo who reads this book will feel alone anymore they won't feel like they're the only one having to deal with being a virgo <laughs> that seems to be kind of a theme for you of 
that shared experience because it, you know earlier we talked about community and it's obvious that like through the leather and fetish community and different communities community is very important to you the the 12 step and now writing this book and and taking that perspective it seems like community is is sort of a thread that runs through everything for you it really is and i um i i have never I, I I don't think I will ever be an expert on anything, but I very much would like to be a guide and kind of help people find what they're looking for or, um, you know, find where they're supposed to be or help them become who they're supposed to be. Um, when I blog, um, and I write a lot about witchcraft and chaos magic and paganism in general, but a lot of the topics that I write about are things that that I don't know much about so my perspective is we're going to go through this together because I know there are other people who are interested in this. So I'm going to figure it out and I'm just dragging all of you along with me so we can all kind of do it together. <laughs> I love, I love that about being a guide because that's really, we need guides, you know, mm-hmm. people don't, people don't need, want to be spoon fed, but they do need someone to kind of guide and take them by the hand and, and sort of help them connect to the resources and the people that are going to be really instrumental in their lives and in helping them discover who they are and, and live that. So I, I appreciate that imagery of a, of a guide as opposed to a, a teacher or a mentor or, you know, some of those other kinds of ways that we look at that. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, as we're starting to reach kind of the end of our interview here, is there any like thing that we haven't discussed that you just really is like burning that I want to bring this up? to listeners um you know there's nothing burning (laughs) (laughs) this is a good thing um uh every every time i've done a podcast there's always that feeling of afterwards of like well here's the list of things i forgot to say um (laughs) but uh, i i uh i think we we covered all of it i think that um the one thing i would like to say is that regardless of what aspect of queer spirituality or spirituality in general that someone may be interested in there is a place for them within it um i do think uh especially in kind of you know paganism and the occult on social media there is um quite a bit of uh i don't like the term but i'll go ahead and use it gatekeeping in terms yeah. of you know uh like you have the you have the witchcraft influencer on tiktok saying you know here's i do you'll never do things as well as I will, but you know, right. here, here's, here's a little thing that you can try, but it won't be as good as when I do it. Um, or at least that's the attitude that's often reflected. And I disagree with that attitude. I think we all have a remarkable amount of potential. Um, and if we are, if we are being pulled in a particular direction or if we are feeling overly drawn towards a path, there is more than likely a place for us somewhere within that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really powerful message because that's a pet peeve of mine when I read books and the author says, well, not everyone can do this. Only certain people or mm-hmm. their special gifts. And I'm like, no, nah, that's all BS. Like anyone can yeah. learn. You know, it's it's like any other skill you practice and you get better at it. Um, and yeah, yeah I, some just, people, I just made a yeah. oh, good. Some I, people I might, made, it, it might come naturally, <laughs> right? Like, you know, yeah, the, yeah but, but anyone can do it. <laughs> so, well, and it's. Yeah. It, it it's a joke my mom used to make about what do you call the person with the lowest grades in their medical school class a doctor um 
you know, you don't have yeah. to be the best at everything. You you can you can still, you know, achieve your own potential. It doesn't but it's that's yours. You don't have to measure yourself by other people's successes. Right. Right. Absolutely. And that's such an important message because I think that so much of life is about that comparison. You know, I, yeah. I coach I coach spiritual entrepreneurs and I get this all the time where they're watching other people's social media and being like, Oh, I'm not as good as them, or they're making more money than me and all of it, you know, all of the Mm -hmm. comparison. And we just need to, to stop that and just really like, look at who we are and and just be the best version of who we can be. So, yeah, 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 definitely. So how do people get in touch with you? Keep up with what you're doing. Well, I have a, uh, they can always go to thumperforge.com. Um, which is just sort of, uh, it's a, it's not the most, most, uh, intricate of websites, but it'll have just information of what I'm doing and, and, uh, what I'm working on. Um, the, uh, if you go directly to Pathios, pathios.com slash blogs slash five fold law, um, that'll take, uh, people directly to my blog. And on most social media platforms, I'm just at five fold law. Um, so on, uh, uh, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. That's where you can find me or not Twitter. Uh, okay. TikTok. Okay, I, I fell away from the Twitter. I fell away from the wow. Twitter graph, but I'm so many of us have, right? <laughs> <laughs> but everywhere else, if you just Google fivefold law, I come up. Okay, great. Yeah. And we'll, we'll include some of those links in the description accompanying this episode. So people can just click those links and, and go find you. So any uh, parting words of wisdom for listeners before we close our episode? Um, you know, I, uh, I, I will reiterate something I just said in a TikTok video where, um, you know, as I said at the beginning of this, I, I tend to hyper-focus and when it comes to the occult, I will just like fall merrily down any number of different rabbit holes and spend quality time in each one of them. But, um, whatever it is that is holding my interest or that I, you know, wake up one morning realizing that I've read 17 books on or whatever, somebody inevitably says, you're not allowed to do that. And, or, uh, and a lot of times it's, oh, you're Wiccan. Wiccans can't do that. And it's never a Wiccan saying it. It's always somebody outside of Wicca (laughs) who has an idea of what Wicca is and therefore assumes that they know what my limitations are. Um, but I have never been one to constrain myself by other people's limitations. And, you know, if somebody wants to see me or perceive me as somebody with restricted potential or restricted abilities because of my background and practices, that's okay because it's not my problem. That is for them to work out. (laughs) And I'm not going to let those, any belief held by somebody else dictate what I am or am not capable of. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great advice for everyone. So So I encourage everyone to do the same. Absolutely. So thank you so much for taking the time to be here today and sharing um, your thoughts on queer spirituality. It's been really interesting. And I've, I've learned a little bit about chaos magic today. So <laughs> you're very welcome. I had a blast. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. This has been the Queer Spirituality Podcast with Julian Crossan Hill. If you enjoyed this show, please consider leaving a rating on whatever site you get your podcasts at. 
Rating the show allows other people to discover it and be exposed to these ideas around queer spirituality. You can also find my blog and past episodes of this podcast at www.queerspirituality.net. That's www.queerspirituality.net. You can also there find links to the Queer Spirituality Facebook group, my various social channels where you can get involved in the discussion or send me your feedback or questions or things you'd like to hear on the show. Thank you again for listening and for your support. Bright blessings. 